Greetings and salutations from Times Square, crossroads of the world. This is the Muni Lowdown, produced by DebtWire Municipals, where we talk about this week's most interesting stories in the municipal bond market. And I am your host, Young Lim, desk editor at DebtWire Municipals. Today is Thursday, September 12th, and we've got a full house of interesting stories to discuss. From Harrisburg, PA... Kathy O'Donnell will talk about the latest on the retail and entertainment behemoth known as the American Dream in New Jersey. From sunny Miami, Simone Barabo will focus on a hospital watch report that she wrote attracts 85 hospitals from April 1st through July 31st. And finally, from our New York City office, the head of municipal research, Greg Clark, gives us his analyst snapshot on the U.S. Virgin Islands. All right, let's start with Kathy. Kathy, how are you doing out there? I'm doing pretty well, Young. How are you doing? All right. Let's talk about uh, the latest that's going on with this American dream. I, he- I hear something's going on today in, in terms of the bondholders, and there's something like a site visit that's going on right now? Mm-hmm. Yes, I would love to be a fly on the world, world there now, but sadly, my invitation did not uh, was not sent, I believe. But anyway, there was a an Emma notice that went out on uh, Monday, September 9th, I believe, and it said that um, the developer, which is listed as Amarim um, LLC, would be holding a site visit for bondholders and potential bondholders today, uh, September 12th, which we're recording this on Thursday, September 12th. And investors uh, that were interested in attending needed to complete and execute a letter of representation form, um, and they could participate in the uh, in the site visit. So. I would definitely be interested to find out uh, how that went. It's certainly a very, very exciting project and a lot of anticipation around it. And tell me, what's the latest going on with a uh, tax court case in New Jersey involving American Dream? Sure. There um, is going to be a telephone conference with a judge um, that will be set for October 18th um, in the tax court of New Jersey uh, before presiding Judge uh, Joseph um, Andresini. Um, and what that case is, is it was filed back in uh, April. And Amarim, uh, the developer, is uh, it, it involves two separately assessed parcels, but basically Amarim has uh, filed a taxpayer complaint um, against the borough. And the reason um, why that uh, has some significance is because um, a decline in the assessed value of the um, of the properties uh, could reduce the pilot payments, and in, that in turn those funds are ultimately used to pay the debt service. There's two pilots. There's the borough pilot, which is a fixed pilot that goes to East Rutherford, so that really doesn't change. But there's also a debt service pilot, and potentially. If uh, if Amarim is successful, it has the potential to reduce that that you know the amount of money that goes into that debt service pilot. Although from what I hear, it is um, a bit difficult to prevail when you're bringing some of these complaints. I think the burden is on the the entity bringing the case, like um, Amarim. So uh, it will be uh, an interesting uh, case to follow, certainly. And just for our le- listeners' um, reference, pilot uh, bonds are obviously an acronym for payment in lieu of taxes. Correct. Yep. Now, with this huge complex that the developers are expecting like over 40 million people a year, and I believe there's like 30,000 parking spots for people with cars, mm-hmm. for the ones who don't, 
they're going to most likely be using NJ Transit. How are they involved in this? Do they have any plans? Is there a bus schedule that's uh, being implemented? Well, yes, it is. It's going to be a mammoth undertaking, as you said, and um, it's going to I mean there's everything from water parks, and people have been saying, you know, you're going to have kids in wet bathing suits and uh, people with skis, I guess, uh, all kind of trying to get back and forth. Um, so New Jersey Transit um, is going to hold some public hearings. There's one, I believe, scheduled on the third of October. Um, and that is at the Journal Square Transportation Center. And then there's another one on the 7th of October, uh, which is at the Bergen County Freeholders Office. Um, so they're going to be looking for, um, you know, gathering information from the public and feedback um, regarding, uh, you know, the expansion of uh, service, um, you know, relative to uh, American Dream. And I know that on October 31st, New Jersey Transit added a pilot weekend and weekday evening service to bus route number 772 to accommodate customers interested in employment and recreational services uh, at American Dream. And beginning on October 25th, which is when the facility opens, New Jersey Transit will operate bus service from New York City to the American Dream Complex. Um, There's a new bus route, uh, number 355. So this huge entertainment Utah complex is set to open, I believe, within a little over six weeks from now, October 25th. Mm-hmm. What else mm-hmm. can you tell us about the preparation? Well, it's certainly um, going to be exciting, and I would definitely like to be there for the opening. You know, it, it certainly is generating a tremendous amount of buzz. So um, I guess we'll all see when we see. I'm, I understand there is going to be some kind of a press junket beforehand and i'm hoping to be invited to that too so stay tuned all right kathy well thanks for the latest on american dream thank you for your time all right let's move move south to sunny miami is it sunny down there uh simone it is pouring outside right now (laughs) there goes my sunny reference not sunny at all yeah (laughs) all right let's talk about this uh hospital watch you did um Big project, and as they say, whenever there's good news and bad news, people want to hear the bad news first. So tell us how the hospitals have fared over the latest period in your watch. So what stuck out when you talk about bad news most was how the unprofitable hospitals from the period before fared. You know the nursery rhyme about the little girl, when she was good, she was very, very good, and when she was bad, she was horrid? (laughs) It's kind of the case here except hospitals that were unprofitable in the prior period it's more like when they were bad they turned very very good or else when they were bad they turned horrid and what i mean by that is if you look at the hospitals that saw the most deterioration in their operating margin i'm talking about declines of five percentage points or more which is a lot all three hospitals were already unprofitable And if you look at the hospitals that saw the most improvement in their operating margins over the period, out of the six that had increases of more than five percentage points, four had previously been unprofitable, so the majority. What's causing the uh, diverging fates? So it's not a big macroeconomic or policy thing, and it's really a different story for each hospital. So as you say, look at the bad first. If you look at the hospitals that were deteriorating, Tulare Local Healthcare District, San Giorginio uh, Memorial Healthcare District, and the Hospital Authority of Valdosta and Loudoun's counties. The issues were really related to management or labor. Tulare was shut down after its war with its former health, its former manager, Healthcare Conglomerate Associates. 
over their reporting period, which was earlier than the others. So to Larry, it's a little bit of an unusual case because we're looking at the year ending June 2018. But they've since gotten a new manager and exited bankruptcy, so things are looking up for them. San Giorgio's management dysfunction led to a super downgrade, and when you look at the hospital authority of Valdosta and Loudoun's County, that was also hit by a super downgrade because of operating losses, and those losses were in part driven by higher labor costs. So let's go to the flip side. What about the ones that are improving? Again, there's no one factor that's leading to their turnaround. Texas Gainesville Hospital District got out of bankruptcy and changed management. And now they're still unprofitable, but they're a whole lot less unprofitable than they were before. Another hospital, University Hospital, that's in New Jersey, it looked like the improvement, or it looks like the improvement nine months, for the nine months ending March 31st was just a blip because they've already posted their full year results and their loss actually grew slightly over the full period. And Wellspan Health had a difficult year prior to this year, partly because of electronic health records implementation, which hurt a lot of hospitals. So they fared better by comparison during this year. So the prior year they had something go wrong, not really go wrong, but make things more difficult for them and then in this in the most recent period you know they just look better by comparison and then finally Marietta health care managed to increase its revenue even while decreasing its expenses which is a feat and that was part of a larger turnaround strategy so let's look at the overall picture not just at the uh, unprofitable hospitals how are they doing overall an even split. In our hospital watch, we looked at 85 that reported recently, and out of those, 44 saw a growing operating margin and 41 saw operating deterioration. And this compares to last time we did this when about two-thirds saw an improving operating margin and a third saw deterioration. But you can't really draw too many conclusions from these two numbers. The universe of hospitals that reported changed slightly, and it's small anyway. Uh, Simone, you mentioned uh, Hospital Watch. Could you tell us a little bit more about how our quarterly surveillance works? Yes, of course. So every quarter, we look at all of the hospitals that Deltwater Municipals has written about before and that we still cover for one reason or another. There are 92. And so we look at the income statements of whoever has reported over the prior months and see if they're doing better or worse. In cases where there's been a big change, they swung from a profit to a loss or vice versa, or there's a big change in operating margin, we do a deeper dive and look to see why. So there's a lot more info in the report. Uh, I've got one last question for you. What are some of the bigger picture issues to look at in the hospital sector? Right. So. You still have an ongoing court challenge to the Affordable Care Act. It's at the appeals level, something that could basically undo the law. And then you have the Trump administration obviously has not been supportive of the Affordable Care Act. So you have other administrative actions, changing health reimbursement arrangements that would likely get people off of employer-sponsored insurance or proposals that reduce Medicaid eligibility. You also have the looming cuts of disproportionate share payments next month. So to the extent that these measures are successful or come to pass, you'll have fewer people who are insured, and that places a heavier burden on hospitals. 
All right. Well, thank you, Simone, for your work on the Hospital Watch. Thank you for your time. Thank you. All right. Let's go to last but not least, our head of research, Greg Clark. Thanks, Greg, for joining us today. Thanks, Young. All right. Let's talk about the U.S. Virgin Islands and your analyst, the well-received analyst snapshot. No, I, I, I hope it was well received. The, uh, the title of this piece was U.S. Virgin Islands Confounds the Odds Makers. And what I meant by that was that some people have thought that the Virgin Islands um, would have defaulted before now or would have restructured its debt, and they have not. Uh, but first, a little perspective. The Virgin Islands issues two major types of bonds. One type is payable from gross receipts, which are, as the term implies, uh, uh, payable from a business's gross rather than net income. Then there's matching fund revenue bonds. Matching fund revenues are federal excise taxes collected on rum produced in the Virgin Islands, but then exported to the U.S. And Virgin Islands legislation creates a statutory lien on matching fund revenues. That gives these bonds an extra level of security. The last time they tried to sell bonds, any either type of bond, at least in the public debt market, was in December of 2016 when they marketed matching fund bonds. They couldn't find a buyer. And proceeds of those bonds would have been used for working capital. Now, Greg, when you say working capital, when you use that term, what do you mean exactly? Well, they would have used proceeds to pay uh, operating expenses rather than for a capital project such as a bridge or a school, which are the typical, which are some typical uses of bond proceeds. So after that bond issue failed, a lot of people wondered how they could keep everything afloat. And then after that, in September of 17, nine months roughly after the failed bond issue, hurricanes Irma and Maria hit the Virgin Islands. Now, talking about those storms, what effect did they have on the Virgin Islands' economic base? They had a devastating effect. Uh, Puerto Rico got more, uh, I'm not trying to minimize what happened in Puerto Rico, they got more press because they have more people. There is over 3 million people in uh, Puerto Rico. Virgin Islands is the size of a somewhat small or somewhat large city, depending on your perspective, about 100,000 people. But from 2017 to 2018, their total visitors declined by 32%. And to give, you an else, uh, to give you a sense of what else is going on there, uh, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics indicates that there's been a 20% decline in non-farm employment between June of 2009 and June of 19. So obviously a lot of that predated the, uh, the hurricanes, but that's a, a longer-term economic trend there. So, Greg, you, said, uh, you just made a comment about their financial reporting. Tell us more about that. Well, they haven't re released audited financial statements since those for the fiscal year that ended on September 30th of 16. And adding to the problem of late financial statements is that the auditors that year issued what's called a disclaimer of opinion, quote-unquote, for some of the Virgin Islands' major funds, and that indicates that accounts were unable to obtain information sufficient to issue even a qualified or an adverse opinion, neither of, neither of which is good, but they couldn't even get to the point where they could do that. Uh, and the first thing you think of when you see this type of opinion, and this is in almost 40 years of doing this kind of work, 
This was the first time I ever saw a disclaimer of opinion. I had to go look it up. Um, the, first, the first thing I thought of was that their financial controls aren't what they should be. So let's say I'm an investor. What else is going on that would concern someone like me as an investor? Well, pensions are an ongoing problem. Uh, the, uh, the pension system is only 16.2% funded. That's assets divided by liabilities, to give you some shorthand. And under current assumptions, plan insolvency is expected during fiscal year 24. The uh, Virgin Islands and its pension system, which are two, which are legally separate entities, are in litigation that could result in the Virgin Island government having to pay as much as 352 million uh, dollars to the pension system. That's about 43% of the fiscal year 20 general fund budget. So they couldn't pay that out of the budget, and apparently they don't have access to the bond markets. So uh, it's, it's questionable whether they could come up with that money. There's also uh, the prospects for lower Medicaid funding, uh, a challenge to excise taxes, which account for about 4% uh, of revenue, and inadequate monies for solid waste disposal. This last item is the kind of thing that happens when things get tight, the uh, the governor's fiscal year 20 budget requests about 31 million dollars for solid waste disposal. That's a 17 percent reduction from the prior year, and only about half of what the authority, the uh, solid waste management authority, says is needed to properly dispose of solid waste. So you've got a potential landfill crisis. So what's been the effect overall on bond prices? Well, bond prices declined from mid-16 through early 2018, but they've since rebounded to the uh, high to mid-90s. The decline began roughly at the same time as the first payment default on Puerto Rico's general obligation bonds and ended a few months after hurricanes Irma and Maria struck the islands. In the last 18 months, there's been a, a lack of overly bad news, you know, no, no major natural disasters. And uh, I, would, I would just say that, the, that despite the rebound in, in bond prices, I think if I were an investor, I would uh, look for signs of increased stress, especially given all the factors that we mentioned. Uh, pension funding litigation seems to be the one that will probably rear its head first, if I had a guess. All right, Greg. Well, thank you very much for your analyst snapshot. Thank you to Simone. Thank you to Kathy. And thank you to our new podcast producer, Anthony Phillips. And to most of all, thank you to our listeners. Thanks for listening to the Muni Lowdown with me, your host, Young Lim. If you want to know more, subscribe to DebtWire.com and follow us on social media. Please leave comments, rate, like, and share. Join us next week when we talk about the latest in the municipal bond market.